The early Hebrew story found in the book of Genesis tells the story about the first man and the first woman who were tempted to eat the fruit of a tree in order that they may know good and evil. From that story to the present, we are still asking questions about what makes an action right or wrong. More importantly, when does a person step across the threshold from a gray character towards becoming a bona fide villain? The reverse question also presents itself. What makes someone a hero? What are the earmarks of a hero? Does a hero always win? Does a hero always have to succeed to be labeled so? And what about the mass that find themselves in the gray area, relenting or silently sitting by while atrocities are committed all around them? How do we classify them? We'll be tracking the life and actions of three individuals. Two of them are some of history's greatest malefactors. The other is a story you have possibly never heard. He's hardly the most consequential hero of this story. He's just one of countless people who fought back while a mass of society chose to join or relent as opposed to the chance to resist. In this series, we will explore these three lives and watch how they intertwine into critical moments that define them and change history in radical ways. This is a story about what makes a villain and what makes a hero. Young Vladimir Lenin grew up in a very cozy family, verging on actually minor nobility. Now, when he told the story later in life, he always tried to spin it, make it appear that he'd grown up, you know, a little more hard scrabble. But actually, his life probably couldn't have been cozier. In fact, his brother being hanged for terrorism was really quite a shock to the Yulnovs, because the family was fairly pedestrian. There is one secret, though. They held a little close to the vest, and that being that his grandmother was from a poor Jewish family. Jews were hated all over Europe. Walter Lindemann, the Jewish historian, once aptly said that anti-Semitism is hating Jews more than they deserve to be hated. So after Lenin had passed away, his sister wrote to his successor, Joseph Stalin, tell the story of Lenin's Jewish ancestry, asking him to make it known to the public. Stalin was not about to make that known about his hero he had already purged Jews from his party. And in 1953, he was actually believed to have been planning a mass extermination of all Russian Jews in his concentration camps. Fortunately, he died before he had that chance. So let's begin this story the proper way. The only, the best way to begin any story. Right at the beginning. So to trace the lives of three individuals, we're going to start with the oldest, Joseph Stalin, born in 1879. He was the first of the three. Now, it should be noted that we will be referring to him throughout this podcast by his taken name, Stalin. But his real name, actually, is Joseph Shukashvili. He hailed from a very proud nation land, a land that had been around, at least in some form or permutation, since the time of the ancient Greeks. When the Greeks told stories of Calchas and Jason and his Argonauts going out and looking for the Golden Fleece, it was Georgia we think they were probably referring to. Georgia, not to be confused with the American state by the same name, and I say that because, unfortunately, I must, was something of a melting pot in the 19th century with about 70 different people groups all intermingled. It had not always been a part of Russia, and its annexation was only recent, sometime around the 1860s. By the time Joseph was born, the place was something of an economic sinkhole. A vast number of its citizens were poor, illiterate, just flat-out broke. Now, like Napoleon, 
Stalin will ultimately forsake his native people, the Georgians, and he will start. He will cast his lots with his captors, the Russians. Now, his parents, to talk about his family, we probably should mention his parents, were among the rabble. They were illiterate, and effectively speaking, they were more or less like serfs, albeit serfdom was officially abolished in 1861. Yet, they still lived a pretty hard life. His father, Basarian, was a shoe cobbler, and his mother was named Ekaterina Galazzi. Now, they had three children together, but their son, Joseph, was the only one that lived. Now, Stalin had the kind of story that Lenin wished he could have said about himself. Uh, he almost died of smallpox as a child, and sometime during childhood he had an accident that left him with a left arm that was never quite right. But that was the least of his troubles. The real problem was that his father, Bessarion, was a drunk. And he was known by everyone in the community to be extremely abusive, particularly to Joseph and his mother. One of the schoolmates, writing much later on about Stalin's life, reflected how mercilessly Basarian beat young Stalin before the age of 10. Now, Stalin never forgot how his father treated him. He wanted, he wanted revenge. And in fact, this would lead to a lifelong struggle with authority. Stalin does not like anyone else to be in charge of him. Now, perhaps in many ways, and I'm going out on a limb, I'm making a suggestion historically that doesn't have to be taken for fact. This is my opinion, and my opinion only. But perhaps in many ways, he might have psychologically projected this onto Russia. Russia may have been to him like a mother, or like himself, helpless to defend itself against the actions of a tyrant, which in this case would have been the Tsar. The Tsar was often called or referred to as Russia's father. So maybe this was an extra motivation for hating the man in the office. Maybe not. Perhaps that's speculative, but it's something worth thinking about. At some point, his father abandoned them to go work in a factory in a different city. His, his mother was left to fend for herself, and actually she did pretty good, all things considering. She went to work for an Orthodox priest. The priest had compassion for her. Uh, he, helped to, he helped her son to go to Orthodox school till he was the age of 18. She wanted so desperately for him to become a priest. It may be hard to imagine, but Stalin was once a choir boy. Later in life, when he became the the premier of Russia, and his, asked his mother about what she thought about his success. She said, so-so, I wish you would have became a priest. So this was his, this was his life, and uh, what his mother's wishes are certainly not going to play out. Now, again, his mother called him so-so, but he started going by a different name. He saw him was fascinated with adventure stories as a kid. He had a great love for romantic, heroic tales about great heroes who have fantastic adventures. And one of his favorites, very tellingly, I might add, at least to his psychosis, was a book entitled The Patricide by Alexander Kazbegi. It was a story about a Russian version of the English Robin Hood. It was a little different, but the story was more or less the same concept. This Robin Hood, like the one in our stories, uh, fought for the peasants. He fought for the average person. And this inspired him. And as a revolutionary, he took that name upon himself by calling himself Koba. Koba is the Russian Robin Hood. In 1894, Stalin went to seminary, but he grew disillusioned, especially when people told him what to do. Stalin wasn't too big on that. He was only, four, he was only five foot four inches tall when he was full grown, and, but he was growing in other ways into a fiery powerhouse. He started reading Karl Marx and Charles Darwin and a lot of other contraband at the school. One day, there's a story that he showed them to his friends and said to them, they've been lying to us. There is no God. 
and by 1899, the pretense was over, and he decided, it was, he decided to get involved with an underground Marxist group. Uh, he adopted the view that history's enemies were his enemies, and those enemies were the wealthy. Now, the move to industrialization was very, very hard on Russia. If you remember, Russia has been hampered in the industrial process. When everyone else was, was, uh, was modernizing, Russia was not modernizing. They were trying to keep hold of this past. So by the time of Tsar Nicholas, Russia is very much behind. And then when the industrialization begins, it moves so rapidly it causes harm to local farmers. In 1905, a rebellion breaks out and peaceful protesters storm the Winter Palace, asking the Tsar to do something on their behalf, asking the Tsar to ease up burdens. They want constitution. They want representation. You know, all the things the English and the French wanted. Now, this was kind of a shock to the Tsar, and instead of responding positively, listening to them or coming up with a way to, to communicate uh, his goodwill to the people, he, his troops opened fire on unarmed citizens who were peacefully protesting. This was a shock. The Tsar was their father. He was the father of the people. If the father of the people turns and kills his own people, what kind of family do they really have? So Tsar Nicholas knew and felt the pressure to make things right. He creates a body called the Duma, which enfranchises people from lower ranks of society to have some level of say in the government. Unfortunately for him, uh, unfortunately uh, for the people, rather, I should say, he then places nobles as kind of a counterbalance party, a little group in there, and this undoes everything that he did. He never delivers on the Constitution, and he leaves the people feeling frustrated. So in response to these revolutionaries, in response to this, the revolutionaries begin to write. They begin to agitate. One of those revolutionaries is young Vladimir Lenin. He had his own paper. The paper was called the Iskra. Stalin became an enormous fan. In fact, when he saw Lenin, he kind of dropped Koba as his hero. He no longer needed a fictional character because Lenin was his new hero, the person that he wanted to be most like. Now, and uh, so up to the run-up of 1914, when World War II begins, um, Stalin has a very colorful and checkered career. He's, he finds himself kind of in and out constantly of exile. He commits a crime, he gets exiled, he escapes, he comes back, and uh, they just can't really seem to, to get him figured out. Uh, he becomes kind of a henchman, and, and he robbed banks to fund the party. Now, some people think that, and again, there's this, this huge revisionist history going on right now, that Stalin was really just an evil maniac, and, and Lenin was really a good guy who just, you know, did some things sometimes that were questionable. But I want you to know that, that Lenin is every bit as awful as as Stalin is, and that everything Stalin did, Lenin was in complete and total agreement with. That in the ways in which Stalin failed the economy, Lenin failed the economy that way first. They were not successful, and none of the programs they set up actually ever worked to address the needs and the things the Russian people wanted. It wasn't so much, especially with Lenin, that he wanted to get rid of the Tsar. He wanted something more than that. Lenin wanted to be the Tsar. He knew that Kobo was robbing banks. He had no problem with that. And in fact, Lenin seems to have dipped into the money and used it, you know, for his own personal, his own personal uh, uses. So during this period, around 1906, uh, Stalin actually gets married. And his wife, his name is Katerina, like his mother, which is a common Russian name. Uh, she dies giving birth to his son. So this is one of those sad moments in his life. So here is what 
here is what is really going on, and, and this, is, this is the problem uh, with the revolutionaries. So during this time, um, Stalin falls in with Lenin, and the reason why is something that is critical to understanding the history of all that's about to happen. So the movement was divided in two camps. They both wanted the same ends, but it was the means that they disagreed on. There's a group called the Mensheviks. They were, they were a group of social revolutionaries. They were socialists. They wanted the same goals, but they thought revolution should come in stages because that's the way Marx seemed to indicate that it should happen. They needed the democratic element and a constitution so the radical changes would not be so pronounced and they could make these shifts more slowly. The Bolsheviks, which was the party led by Lenin, believed that nothing except the violent overthrow would work. They needed to gut the whole thing, and they needed to do it rapidly. Lance the boil, cut the head off the monster, whatever you want to say there, and get down to business. This needed to help because they wanted to crush capitalism in all of its vestiges and bring in a new world order at a rapid speed. Stalin loved this idea, and he fell in with the Bolsheviks because that was exactly the kind of rhetoric and ideas that he himself agreed with. Meanwhile, in Austria, another story has begun. Adolf Hitler was born in, eight, in April 20th, 1889, in Braunau, Austria. So ironically, he was not German either. In fact, his ancestry is riddled with lots of questions. We think it's possible that his family was Czech. Of course, that would have mortified Hitler to know that. Lots of questions about his origins were suppressed even during his own lifetime. You see, his father, Alos, was a son of Marie Schickelgruber. But the father wasn't exactly clear. And in fact, he was born out of wedlock, so his name was his name was Alos Schickelgruber. That could have been Adolf Hitler's name. Heil Schickelgruber just doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Uh, she, um, she worked for a famous Jewish family known as the Rothschilds, and there's rumor that started to circulate during Hitler's lifetime that one of the Rothschild boys was Alice's real father. Now, Hitler didn't investigate these claims, and it, they were horrifying to him, and he hoped that they weren't true. And so Marie, after, after uh, when Alice was five years old, took up and married about a 50-year-old man whose name was Johann George Heidler, he, about five years after Alice was born. She died when very, very, very rapidly after their marriage. It was just a few years. And poor Alice was left without his mother. And then his father kind of grew sickly and died about 10 years later. But that didn't matter because when the mother died, uh, the, the uncle, his uncle, his, his father's brother, was also named Johann, two boys named Johann. This one was Johann Nepomuk Heidler. So he was George's younger brother. He's about 10 years younger. Uh, he took Alos and raised Alos. Now, Alos was uh, a cobbler, a shoe cobbler, but he climbed the social ladder to become a civil servant. I would like to bring out as an interesting that Stalin's father and Hitler's father at one point had been shoemaker. Interesting story. So um, his uncle, Nepomuk, became like a stepfather to him, and he only had one daughter, so Alos was prompted to change his last name in 1876, and that was the first stroke of luck that ever happened for the soon-to-be Adolf Hitler. And by the way, if you're looking at the Piper Dock, that's, the, that's a picture of Hitler as a small child. Um, he's a cute little monster, it looks like. But here, let's take a look and talk about Alos. So Alos, if you look at him, almost looks a little bit like Curly from the Three Stooges, okay? But he has a wicked handlebars mustache. But don't let that fool you. Homeboy's quite the player. 
Now, he's 36 at the time of his, of his marriage. He married a woman in her 50s, who I'm assuming had some wealth, and that was probably the real goal. And some point after their marriage, it seems like pretty rapidly, she's believed to have become an invalid. Her name was Anna. So he took another mistress who go, went by the name, or she had a longer name, but Fanny was the common name she was known by. So the marriage to Anna just didn't last long. He started living with his mistress pretty, pretty soon after marrying his, his wife. Now he kind of started referring to Fanny as his wife because they had a child together, but he was still legally married to Anna. I don't know what was going on there. I, I, at some point, I assume they you know, legally divorced and the paperwork was all filed before the official ceremony. I don't know if there was some, some polygamy. I don't think so. I never heard that story, but it is something that I'm unclear about. So he and Fanny had had two children together, and then unfortunately, Fanny got sick. So this is when um, he first met Hitler's mother, or I shouldn't say he first met her, but he gets to know her. Uh, she's actually a relative of his. She came to work for Allos in the house to take care of his sick wife, and she's related to Allos. But nobody's exactly sure exactly what that relationship really is. Now, this is where the story gets freaky and takes a lot of turns. So you might want to sit down and buckle up while I explain the problem. Keep in mind, this is happening in Austria, so you know what to expect by now. Now, you might be asking, since I opened up this question about Hitler's ancestry, you might be wondering if Hitler was Jewish. Hitler was not Jewish. Modern DNA tests and samples on relatives that were related to Hitler, they show no traces of Jewish ancestry. So that means that in all probability, Hitler was in fact a Heidler. Um, he's, uh, Alos was a Heidler, I should say. I'm not talking about Adolf yet. So Adolf, uh, Alos was a Heidler. So he's believed to have been the son of Johann George, the adopted son of Johann Nepomuk, which was the former's brother. Now Nepomuk only had a daughter named Johanna Heidler. Johanna Heidler had a child with her husband, Johanna Pols, Johann Pols, so a lot of Johans here. And um, that was Hitler's mother, Clara. This means that Alice and Clara were either first cousins once removed, but there is a possible twist. There is a possibility that Johann George was actually not Alice's father, but it is possible that Johann Nepomuk was actually Alice's biological father, making Clara the niece of Alice. So in one way or the other, they're related, and that marriage at the time in Germany was illegal. Um, but she was pregnant, so he actually received a humanitarian waiver that allowed them to marry. Now, they had three children, and unfortunately, diphtheria hit the house and killed uh, two of those children before Adolf Hitler was born. And, um, and, they, had, and they had weak immune systems, so two of them. And the other one was just, his immune system was weak. He was born sickly, again, probably due to the fact that, you know, yeah, the family lineage there is a little, a little, little convoluted. So um, when Adolf is born, he's not a very healthy child. He's actually kind of a sickly child. Clara worries a great deal. Now, I'm going to tell you something that, um, that I found, you know, with some really, really deep research that I, that I looked into on this. And it's very fascinating. But we believe the family doctor of the, the Hitler family was, um, he was a Jewish man, actually. He took care of the family and Clara. And in fact, he said Clara would have been horrified if she had known what Adolf became. But Clara would clean the house like compulsively. I mean, she was a, kind of a germaphobe. And we believe that has some kind of a psychological impact even on Hitler. But there is a, there is a possibility that that had to do with the fact that, you know, she had several children die. And so she was very, very protective of Hitler. She wanted to keep Adolf alive. Now, life was not as desperate for Hitler as it was for Stalin. 
but his home was not a fun place. Um, his mother was, was very protective, and I think she did really love him, and I believe he loved his mother as much as he could love anyone because he's a psycho. But um, he was very proud of his name, which means wolf in ancient language. He went by the name sometimes Wolfie or Wolf, and, and, and he would encourage uh, little kids to call him Uncle Wolfie. And his father, on the other hand, was physically violent, and their home was most certainly a very terrible place to live. Hitler seems to have been beat very badly by a strict and unforgiving father. He once remarked, I never loved my father, but I feared him. He also seems to have likely projected Germany as his mother and the German leaders as his father, like Stalin. Okay, that's one postulation that he was, there's a psychological element that's at play there. His dad uh, wanted uh, complete and total obedience, and he stifled Hitler, never, never had a lot of, of leeway. So Hitler went to school, but he wasn't a great student. He was known to be lazy, and he was an incredible daydreamer. He grew up as a choir boy, but he wasn't interested in, you know, God and the cloth and things like that. His father had made plans for the son. The son was going to become a civil servant, um, but Hitler, Hitler had other ideas. He was, first of all, also, just like Joseph Stalin, the fan of adventure stories and old romantic tales about German heroes of the past. He wanted to be a painter. He wanted to live that bohemian lifestyle, um, kind of freestyling. He idolized the rebel heroes, the ones that he read about in his dime store novels. It's amazing throughout this course how many dime store novel stories we've came across. Fascinating how literature affects us, isn't it? So Hitler decides in, in 1908 to move to Vienna. Hitler's mother passed away, and I will say this for him. I mean, there's hardly many good things you can say about this monster, but this was a positive thing. He, he did seem to care about his mother, and he stated he took care of her uh, when she was sick and did seem to evince, you know, grief at her death. So he receives a, a small inheritance. It's not a massive sum, but it's enough, and he intends he's going to apply for art school. Now, if you're looking at the image, you can look, if you're not seeing my images that I have, if you're not a student of mine, you may look on online and, and pull up the watercolors that Hitler painted. To us, they're not horrible paintings, but they're, they're not the kind of paintings that were going to get accepted in this famous Vienna Academy of Art. He just didn't have the talent for that kind of thing. He was considered to be, you know, an amateur. So he's kind of embarrassed because here he was going to go off to Vienna, make my fortune, become a great artist, and instead he gets rejected by the school. So he just hangs around Vienna and he just kind of blows through his inheritance. He spends, he doesn't work because uh, working wasn't a thing he was real great at. So he goes to a lot of operas. Now you think of operas, you're like, oh, it's got to be boring, but... To his particular time, operas were loud and they were body and, and they were actually kind of like, almost like rock concerts of the time. He falls in love with uh, pieces of Richard Wagner, who also, interestingly enough, okay, Richard Wagner's works was an influence on, dun 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 dun, dun Frederick Nietzsche. Okay, very fascinating. So by 1909, he's, he's blown through his inheritance and he is dead broke. So he tries again to get back into art school but he's rejected. So instead of, you know, doing something else, he decides to live on the streets. He sleeps on a park bench and he's on the street corners and he has nothing. Finally, he decides to go to a men's home because, you know, getting a real job, it's kind of hard. So he has, starts this little side hustle. He's selling watercolor paintings at Vienna. He goes out and paints buildings. And so he starts, he starts here to develop this political perspective. And it is here that we think a lot of the later thoughts of Hitler seem to have been born. 
he is a he has a great fear of socialists. And we'll talk about that more in the next episode. Um, and he's also afraid of foreigners, and he's afraid of Jews, and he associates Jews and socialists as being almost the same thing. Uh, he believes that they are trying to denationalize Germany and destroy uh, Germany's solidarity. And he also starts to read some funky occult literature, okay, some weird stuff that he, he's getting into. Now, I don't think that Hitler was as big of a proponent of this crazy literature and these wild ideas about creating a super race by superior genetic breeding the way that Himmler was. But I do think he bought into at least pieces of it. And I think that that contributed to the fact that, that Hitler is very much a social Darwinist. If you don't know what a social Darwinist is, go back and listen to the other episodes. And I talk about that in more detail when I look at the 19th century. So in, in 1913, he moves to Munich. And we're about to lead into the point in 1914 where the war begins. Now, when Stalin was, was 25 and Hitler was 15, our third character was born. He's the youngest of the three. He was born in Breslau, which is in modern-day Poland, within minutes of his twin sister. They lived in a big house. Now, he comes from a very different kind of family. First of all, his father, Carl, was a psychiatrist. As you can imagine, compared to the others, he lived a life of privilege. His parents doted on their eight children and felt that the house could never have too many. Okay? His name is Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, born in 1906. Now, Dietrich was light-skinned and fair-haired. Uh, and uh, perhaps growing up in the stable home gave Dietrich the possibility of exploring more profound questions than I think Hitler and Stalin were asking. He had an aptitude very early on for theology, which will become the great quest of his life. This is kind of unusual, actually, because his dad, uh, Karl, was something of an agnostic. But it was the mother that inspired this lifelong interest in religion that follows him and ultimately becomes a part of the actions that he takes when he begins to later on come into conflict with Adolf Hitler. Now, their, their schooling was something unorthodox in the very beginning, their early schooling. Instead of attending a German public school where they lived in Breslau, they were taught by the governors because the parents were of Polish descent and they had some questions about German schooling and some distrust of the German government. In 1912, however, when Bonhoeffer was six, his father gets, is the, becomes a professor at the University of Berlin. So the family moves to Berlin, and the parents kind of re relent, and they allow the, kid, the older kids to go to, uh, to school. Now, Dietrich was actually a good student. He's something uh, kind of of a little bit of scrapper. The father wrote down a story that someone had, had said that Dietrich didn't like Jews, and I guess Dietrich beat him up because Dietrich did like Jews. And uh, he was appalled by the idea of being called a racist. Uh, so he has this very strong sense of justice in his own mind and heart at a very early age. So the year is, we're coming in, 19, 1912, we're rolling into 1913. So in 1913, Stalin has moved up the ranks of the Bolshevik party by all of his actions and seedy underbelly dealings. And he's earned the nickname Man of Steel. Uh, he's, all the times he's escaped, he was, uh, he, the times he exiled and then he escaped and came back. And all of these deeds he's done has definitely won him a reputation in the party. Now that year, he was in fact sent to visit Vienna. And it is possible, just remotely possible, that in his time in Vienna, he passed the wandering bohemian lonely beggar known as Adolf Hitler. Wouldn't that be interesting? That same year, Bonhoeffer had settled in Berlin and the world waited with a breathless hush when in 1914, the shot heard around the world rang out. All right, if you are my student, you have homework to do. Um, do a little reading and fill in the stuff that needs to be done and we'll come back and discuss the story and talk about what happens next. <laughs>